It occurred to me this morning how much, um, uh, probably because I like words a lot, there'll be a particular phrase that will just stay in my mind and inform my practice so much. And I thought about uh, organizing everything that I had to say tonight around three phrases. So the three phrases that I have them organized around are uh, good enough and take care and I love you. And some way, another, they all come together in the end, or I hope they do. Um, I really began thinking about uh, what I wanted to say. As Sally was talking last night, I was enjoying her talk so much. And uh, uh, there were two things about it that I wanted to start with tonight. One of them was uh, her emphasis on intention in practice and her invitation to all of you that you go back and maybe write down a few words about what was your intention and uh, bringing up uh, the idea that perhaps, uh, especially for folks who are new and for actually all of us on the first day of practice, there's often the feeling, what am I doing here? And um, I noticed that people smiled last night when she said that, that it comes up during the week. You think to yourself all of a sudden, even after having made all these plans with due deliberation and put in a lot of effort to get here, you get here and then you think to yourself, what am I doing here? Uh, And apart from the fact that it's funny and apart from the fact that it happens to everybody, I think, um, it's such an important question in the most serious way. What am I doing here? Not how did I get here, but what am I doing here? Towards what end? Are we doing this particular practice? I noticed particularly this morning when she said, uh, we do that uh, that uh, peculiar-looking walking. I said, why are we doing that peculiar-looking walking? And there's a reason for it. And so what I thought I really wanted to pick up and continue with tonight is how do the particular practices that we do here work to produce the effect that we want to have from practice? What are we doing here? What do we hope happens? So it seems to me when I think back on my own practice, um, I really didn't have a clear intention when I started. I'm a little chagrined over the years as I heard my teachers talking about the importance of clear intention. I kind of was doing what everybody else was doing in the 1970s, which was going on retreats. and. I discovered subsequently, when I really discovered what was meant to happen as a result of practice, that as soon as I knew what I wanted to have happen clearly, my practicing techniques got better because I knew what was supposed to do what. And then I was really zealous about doing it. So intention is one half of what I want to pick up from what Sally said. And then the other phrase that she said that I really love, that I think I'll remember forever, is we should practice with uh, an attitude of uh, of heedful and heartful. And I just like the way that sounded so much. I thought as she said it, uh, well, heedful and heartful, heartful is uh, wise and compassionate, which is, are really the, uh, not presumed, the actual fruits of practice that the fruit of mindfulness practice is, is wisdom. The fruit of uh, metta practice, of loving-kindness practice, is compassion in all of its various guises. It's the, the ability of the heart to flower fully in love as a result of wisdom and as a cause of wisdom. So I thought that's a really wonderful thing to say, heedful and heartful sounds so good anyway, and that I could talk about practice as heedful and heartful. And I really wanted to make the point that uh, this is uh, a mindfulness retreat. I notice on the schedule it says a Vipassana retreat, which is the Pali term for this particular practice of, uh, of mindfulness. I wanted to say that... Uh, I've really come to think over the years that um, even though we have mindfulness retreats and metta retreats, and even though there's a particular stylized form for metta practice, that I don't think it's possible, actually, 
to do real mindfulness without the spirit of metta, the spirit of a benevolent heart, the spirit of kindness. I think that really the instructions for uh, an open and benevolent, forgiving, spacious, balanced heart are really um, inside of the instructions for mindfulness practice. And that a real moment of mindfulness or condition of mindfulness presumes a heart that's resting in a certain amount of equanimity and openness. When we practice metta, we really talk about um, bringing to mind particular people and uh, trying to cultivate or assuring that we have cultivated the ability to meet that person internally in our mind with a relaxed and uh, benevolent feeling, a relaxed and... uh, interested heart and really I think that's what we're trying to do in, in mindfulness practice meet each moment of our experience not each person but each moment of our experience with a relaxed and interested mind I love the word heedful anyway it's uh, it sounds particularly right coming from Sally because it's a British term, you know, and it sounds very good in that accent. Heedful. We don't say heedful so much. Neither do we say mindful so much. They're both British English. My sense is that probably the first texts that were translated into English from Pali and probably from Tibetan, the first Dharma texts were probably uh, translated by British translators. And so we get a word like mindful. We don't say that so much. Actually, when people don't know anything about mindfulness, they ask me, mindful of what? And uh, I have to say, no, 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 it's mindful, not mindful. And mindful as in mind the step or when you get off the, the subway in, in, in London, this is mind the gap. It means don't fall in as you're stepping off the train. But it really means pay attention, as heedful does. So, They're both kind of um, synonyms for pay attention. Be careful, take some care. Actually, the word vipassana is often translated as seeing clearly. Um, I like the French translation for it better in some texts that are translated into French. It's uh, uh, seeing clearly is translated as... uh, Vision profonde, seeing deeply, profoundly. I like that very much because I think to myself I could take off my glasses and wipe them on my shirt and I'd probably see clearly, but I'm not sure I would see profoundly. And what we, what we are really trying to do is see profoundly what's true. Really, to see profoundly what is the truth of our experience Seeing the truth of our experience, trusting that seeing it really will mean the end of suffering. I like very much to say at the beginning of a retreat that what the Buddha said often is I came to teach one thing, came to teach about suffering and the end of suffering. It's a lovely thing that I thought I'd read to you. I'm going to to amend it. I'm going to tell you that this is from a still forest pond. It's the teachings of Ajahn Shah, who was a uh, Thai teacher in this tradition. Uh, Many of my teachers studied with him. But I'm going to translate it. I'm going to I'm going to amend it um, because it starts out by saying a monk's life. I'm going to I'm going to uh, change the forest to uh, the retreat center, and monk to practitioner, and I'm going to fix the gender as well, so <laughs> you can know all that. Um, talking about uh, a practitioner's life here in the retreat center, where a practitioner can learn to contemplate the nature of things. She can live happily and peacefully. She can look around and by doing that, understand and see that all forms of life degenerate and eventually die. Everything changes. Nothing that exists is permanent. And when she understands this, she begins to become serene. 
Practitioners are trained to be content with little. They eat only what they need. They sleep only when necessary. They become satisfied with what they have. This is the foundation of our practice. We don't practice for selfish reasons. We practice in order to understand and know ourselves and thus be able to teach and show others how to live peacefully and wisely. But meditation does not involve simply being at peace with the world. On the contrary, confronting the self can be like walking into a raging storm. Beginning intensive practice, one often despairs at first. Some people might even want to kill themselves. That's pretty exciting. I didn't, I thought about amending that out, but I felt a little bit honor bound to put it in. He did say it. It's a little desperate. Some think that a practitioner's life is lazy and easy. Let them try it themselves and see how long they can stand it. A practitioner's work is hard. She works to free her heart in order to feel the loving kindness that embraces all things. Seeing that all life rises and falls, is born and expires like the breath, she knows that nothing can belong to her, and then she puts an end to suffering. It's really for the last two sentences that I wanted to read that to you. I wanted to say she works to free her heart in order to feel the loving kindness that embraces all things. That really the point of practice is to see clearly what's true and the fruit of seeing what's clearly true is that it uh, allows the natural kindness of the heart to emerge and to manifest, to uh, uh, warm one's own life and comfort the life of everyone around. And the last sentence, seeing that all life rises and falls, is born and expires like the breath. Really, one of the things that one is meant to see in practice, of, uh, the central perhaps thing that we're meant to see, is the perishability of things, the impermanence of things. Here it is that you came yesterday, and maybe it seems like a thousand years ago, but it's already now. At each moment of the time from when you planned to come until now came and came and came and came and came all of a sudden until you're here and then each day will come and come and come until all of a sudden it'll be gone just like each breath as you sit arises and passes away and each thought arises and passes away and the sun came up this morning and now it's sitting and the moon in the week that you'll be here will get bigger and bigger and there's every possible way in every possible moment to watch the changeability of things. By really seeing the changeability of things, we get to see that there's nothing that can get held on to, nothing that can be saved, nothing that can be made to change its course of natural arising and passing away. And the heart and the mind, when it understands that, stops struggling. And it's really that struggle in the mind to have things other than what they are, to have them stay a certain way, be a certain way, be fixed in a certain way, that really is what the Buddha called suffering, named suffering. That tension in the mind that is unable to let go of the idea that things are changing. I read um, a line once in a book called uh, Tranquility and Insight. I enjoyed the book very much. The book is written by a man called Amadeo Solelaris. And I enjoyed it very much because it really um, described so much how this practice is a mixed practice of cultivating the tranquility that comes from concentration practice and the insight that comes from awareness practice. In in the realm of meditations, mindfulness is a mixed practice. I particularly enjoyed how well he described that. I also enjoyed a particular line in that book, in in the beginning of it. And I imagined if there were a line that I could 
cut out and um, sew in the lining of my coat as uh, was said of Blaise Pascal that he had an enlightenment experience and he wrote down his vision and he sewed it in the lining of his coat and he wore that coat every day for the rest of his life. I read this particular line in Soleil Laris and I thought, well, if I were going to put a line in the lining of my coat and carry it around, it would be the line that said, we practice in order to see once and for all that everything is impermanent, empty, of enduring substance, and that, and so that there is literally, quite literally, nothing to worry about. For a person like myself, whose principal hindrance is restlessness of mind, person given to worrying about practically anything, I like to think of myself as having been born with a a natural tendency to acquire a black belt in tendency in, in worrying. When in doubt, worry. It's a motto, I think, that really propelled me into practice. I love that line, to discover that there is nothing to worry about. Actually, what I come to understand about it is that it really means that the mind can be fearless. It can be so clear about the lawfulness of things unfolding. It can be so appreciative of uh, the, um, the absolute correctness of that that it can be not frightened. I'd like to be not frightened. Sally's instructions this morning were really very clearly the instructions for tranquility and awareness in balanced proportions. She said, I think something like, uh, let the body particularly and the mind be both become relaxed and at ease and comfortable. That's the tranquility part. That's the composure part. And let the mind also stay real interested and curious. And that's the alertness part. There are practices that are really purely concentration practices where the mind gets steadier and steadier and steadier and more and more composed. And they're wonderful practices and they bring all kinds of extraordinary altered mind states of great rapture and great calm, great happiness. Not always so much insight. And that there are, and there are practices and traditions that really call for just alertness in the mind. My own experience has been that my ability to stay alert and present very much depends on a certain amount of composure having been established in the mind. And I like very much that this particular practice that we're doing is a mixed and balanced practice of both cultivating composure, which we're really doing in these first several days, of uh, dedication to very simple breath awareness and alertness practice at the same time. We'll spend several days really encouraging you to stay pretty much with the breath and the breath in the body as the body manifests the breath through it. It was really important this morning. I hope that uh, you really felt that instruction about how the breath echoes through the whole body. Really, when the breath comes in, the whole body moves. Your arms move up and down. Close your eyes for a minute. You don't have to sit in any kind of a fancy way. Just close your eyes. Don't breathe in a fancy way. Just let the breath come in and out. And notice how it echoes in the whole body that your bottom touches the seat just a little bit more firmly, that your arms lift up on the, alongside of you. If you're sitting in a chair, that your back touches a chair a little bit more firmly, that your shoulders pick up. It really echoes all the way through the body, just by itself. It's a whole body event. Sometimes when the mind's very focused, it begins to feel it particularly in one place or another. It can even bring the attention to quite a small focus 
of the breath changing in the body. But really the whole body, the whole physical realm for these first days really is where we're bringing the attention. If your body is healthy and your breathing is comfortable, the very neutrality of that in and out, predictable, trustworthy, all by itself happening experience works to compose the mind, settle it down, and at the same time paying attention to it keeps the mind awake. There's a great story in it to tell about the the notion of the uh, um, combination of uh, tranquility and uh, alertness that is mindfulness practice, which I'll particularly tell because I know that there are a lot of people on this retreat who haven't been on retreat before. It has to do with the fact that um, when uh, the Insight Meditation Society in uh, uh, Barry, Massachusetts, when the teachers, our friends uh, Jack Cornfield and Joseph Goldstein and Sharon Salzberg were looking for a place to settle down and have a retreat center on the East Coast. They visited various places and they visited this particular monastery in uh, in Barrie that had previously been a training center for uh, a Catholic order. And uh, they liked it very much. It was all set up. They could start immediately to have retreats for a hundred people. They were somewhat uh, hesitant uh, about saying right away, okay, because it was a very big venture. So they went to downtown Barrie, which is a very small place, to have lunch. And they noticed that uh, the insignias on the uh, sleeves of the uniforms of the Barrie police, which are the insignia of the town of Barrie, which was incorporated in 17-something-something, is tranquil and alert. (laughs) So they decided that it was a sign. (laughs) And friends of theirs uh, made it possible for them to have that monastery and start to teach. It's important to say that the tranquil and alert is in the service of seeing clearly that everything changes, that clinging to anything is the cause of suffering, insisting that anything be other than what it is is the cause of suffering, and that seeing that everything that happens is connected to everything else that happens in an extraordinary cause and effect chain of events way more complex most of the time for me to see anything but the most proximal cause and effect. But that everything that happens happens because of something that has has happened and causes is the cause of the whole future of what will happen. I remember my teacher Joseph Goldstein saying many times before I understood really clearly what he was saying Um, he used the phrase, he said, it's a lawful cosmos. And I misunderstood him for a long time. I thought what he was saying is it's an awful cosmos. (laughs) And uh, I think because I started my practice, uh, and I was really quite seriously uh, uncomfortable with my fears and worries. And I thought it was sort of an awful cosmos. Lawful, lawful. Things happen because of other things. I actually have my... I don't know what the particular reason is for me to have fretfulness as my having been my principal hindrance, but I'm sure there's a lawful reason that somehow karmically that was, uh, that was uh, what I came out with. And so I'm happy... I'm not happy to have had that, but I'm, I'm content... To, uh, to be able to say that's what's true. doesn't make it my fault, it's just what's happening. don't have to be so embarrassed about it either. As a matter of fact, I began to get better from it. I, I date the beginning of the fading of the fretfulness from my ability to talk about it and tell people I had it. And say, oh, there's people say, oh, you have that, I have that too. Everybody's got something.
so heedful and heartful. We've been talking a lot about heedful as the mindfulness part of practice. And talk about um, well, we'll talk about heartful in a minute. The 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 uh, compassionate part, but I want to talk about one more phrase first that I think goes in the wisdom category of wisdom phrases. It's become, I think, uh, popular, at least amongst my friends, to answer the question, "How are you?" or "How's your health?" Or how's your family? Maybe because I'm getting old. But amongst my friends, we ask each other, how are you? How's your family? How's your health? The answer has become good enough. Um, it's a good answer. It's good enough. Uh, it used to be, I, for a long time, I was using uh, my friend Gwen's answer, which is, uh, it couldn't be better, because it couldn't, actually, ever. Um, <laughs> Even when it's terrible, it couldn't be better. You know, when I'm not doing really well at all, it couldn't be better. If it could be, it would be. I would make it better. <laughs> but I've given up on it couldn't be better because sometimes that sounds really like you're in a peak condition. And uh, I, so I like to say it's good enough. And uh, I think good enough is actually a wisdom phrase because I like to think that it acknowledges that everybody's life is complex. It's a very uh, sort of folksy way to say the first noble truth. Life is complicated. It's difficult. It's full of challenges. It's one or another thing after each other that requires accommodating. Good enough means it's good enough for me to manage to remember that everything is a result of causes, that resenting will make it worse, Good enough for me to be courageous enough to try to change what I can, if it is changeable. Good enough means we can do this. It means I'm not demanding more of the situation. I've begun to think about a way of characterizing mindfulness practice as not demanding more of the situation. It's actually wisdom practice, life practice, not demanding more of the situation than it is, because it is what it is. Good enough means I may like it or I may not like it, but I'm still here, and I'm not embittered. I've been thinking about uh, all the words that mean embittered, like resentful. I think that it's possible not to like something... (laughs) and still not be embittered about it. I had lunch with a friend of mine today who's recently been diagnosed with uh, quite a dreadful illness. And she might survive it, but the course of therapy will be very complicated and difficult. And uh, it's extraordinary to watch how most of the time she can be really sad about what she's got and not embittered. And, she, and we talked about it a little bit today and she said, well, it's not true that I never think, why me and why now? I sometimes do. I said, well, sometimes is okay. You know, if you sometimes don't, it's great. I think really what we're trying to do is, in, what I am trying to do in my practice is to keep a heart that's alive, that's not embittered, Sometimes I talk about my practice these days as checking to see, is my heart still alive? Can I I love in this moment? Can I at least be compassionate in this moment? Can I not be embittered? Can I not resent? Can I not distance myself from the situation? So I want to talk about another phrase that's come into uh, recent use. Uh, people have begun to say to each other, take care. Do you notice that? And when people want to say goodbye, they say, take care. They hang up the phone, they say, take care. 
I actually think it's a nice thing to say, take care. It's another one of those things that I'd like to read into and say take care means uh, it's a difficult world. Be careful about it. It's a complex life. Be temperate, thoughtful. (coughs) Try to live contented. All the things that we are doing here, all the instructions are ways of taking care, trying to live a deliberate, thoughtful life, trying to be contented. I think actually we are practicing all of the fruits of wisdom in order to experience the spontaneous arising of wisdom so that we'll do the fruits of wisdom more spontaneously so that we will see the the really the truths more clearly so that we will practice more spontaneously. I don't know that we have a finish. We can keep on doing it. That's fine with me. I think it's a lifelong practice, keeping your heart alive. I don't know, maybe there's some time that you get to that the heart stops being ever annoyed. In the text, they say you can do that permanently. Um, for myself, I don't know about permanently yet. Um, so I get annoyed and I get frightened and I get irritable I resent sometimes what I think has changed is that I see it faster and I recognize sooner how unpleasant it is and how much I don't want to feel that way and I know some paths to come back into myself I feel most like myself when I'm not estranged from my life So these instructions for mindfulness are the instructions really to be able to enter fully into your life, not to be estranged from it. And what I read today again for myself in preparation for being here uh, was one of my favorite essays about that, which is The Power of Mindfulness from a book called The Vision of Dhamma. This is a compilation of essays, the writings of Nyanapanaka. Nyanapanaka Tara died somewhere in the last 10 years, I think. He was very old in his late 90s. He was, uh, lived in Sri Lanka. He was the uh, head of the Buddhist Publishing Society in, in Kandy in Sri Lanka. He started his life in Germany and in his 20s, having uh, graduated from university, he went to uh, Sri Lanka to study Buddhism and became a monk, became a uh, Mahatera, which is a long-term and uh, venerable monk. He talks about mindfulness practice uh, in such a wonderful way. I want to read you some of it. First of all, he says it's so plain. He says mindfulness, he says, if we can personify it, has a rather unassuming character. Compared with it, mental factors such as devotion, energy, imagination, intelligence are certainly more colorful personalities, making an immediate and strong impact on people and situations. Their conquests are sometimes rapid and vast, though often insecure. Mindfulness, on the other hand, is of an unobtrusive nature. Its virtues shine inwardly, And in ordinary life, most of its merits are passed on to other mental faculties which generally receive all the credit. I just love that. I just think that's so sweet. I want to tell you about four particular functions of, uh, four particular sources of power in mindfulness practice. Mindfulness practice is what we are doing here, the moment-to-moment bringing of a balanced and alert attention to whatever is arising in all of our experience. It's very important for me maybe to say right now that for a long time in my practice it confused me because my teachers would begin by saying it is the moment-to-moment balanced attention on all of our experience, on the whole spectrum of our experience, and then they would say, now bring your attention to your breath and keep it on your breath and bring it back to your breath. I think, wait a minute, they just said the whole spectrum of life experience. In fact, it is attention to the whole spectrum of life experience. 
And as a practice technique, when we come together here, we use the breath to begin with, because the breath, for people for whom the breath is not compromised in any way, is so rhythmic and so ordinary, so present all the time, so easily available as a neutral meditation object. We use the breath coming and going in the body. We use the movements of the legs as we walk, the most normal of an ordinary of feelings in the body. We use the sensations of smell and taste and sight as we eat. Just use the stuff of our immediate experience all day long to train the mind to pay attention. And the very bringing of the mind to each moment of experience carefully has the effect of really clarifying our awareness, composing the mind and clarifying it. So here's one of those four ways that it does it. I probably do this whole thing with Nyanapanaka because I like this particular paragraph that I'm about to read. He sounds so much like a... Um, I'm about to say he sounds so much like a German housewife. And I hope I'm not going to uh, insult Franz. I mean this in the best possible way. And there's not any slur on German housewives. I mean, it's a, Anyway... If it's called tidying up the mental household. If anyone whose mind is not harmonized and controlled through methodical med- meditative training should take a close look at his own everyday thoughts and activities, he will meet with a rather disconcerting sight. Apart from the few main channels of his purposeful thoughts and activities, he will everywhere be faced with a tangled mass of perceptions, thoughts, feelings and casual body movements showing a disorderliness and confusion which he certainly would not tolerate in his living room. (laughs) I love that. I I, I also like the idea of thinking, as Sally said this morning, name quietly what's happening in your mind. It's like putting your living room in order. Okay, this is a chair. It stands here. This is a sofa. It goes here. This is a picture I put on the wall. This is a moment of fear, okay, but now it's past. It's not here anymore. This is a moment of something else. Now that's not here anymore. That the, the naming has that effect of tidying up. You can see what's there. I always imagine that, that living room scene as if it were untidy enough. You couldn't even walk in to look around. So I think about these first few days as we tidy by just naming breath in and breath in and breath in and breath out. I imagine the furniture of my mind rearranging itself in some tidy way so that I will then be able to enter into my mind and look around and see what's there. The second of the powers of mindfulness that Nyanapanaka talks about is the power of uh, the non-coercive aspect of mindfulness, that by just seeing what's there, we're not pushing the mind around, we're not insisting that it be something else. People often say to me, you know, I can't get my mind quiet, but I'm, and I'm always eager to tell them that the point of mindfulness is not to get your mind anything, not quiet or busy or full or empty or any particular way, not even peaceful. If you have to get it that way, actually I think the point of really being attentive to the processes of mind as they arise and pass away is not to have them be a certain way, but to see what they are and to, make, and to be able to say, well, that's what's happening, that's all right. People will say, my mind is full of thoughts. So the, the awareness of that then is mind full of thoughts. That's not a better or a worse state than mind empty of thoughts. Actually, mind empty of thoughts very rarely happens. Sometimes when people, sometimes I think about mind empty of thought might be a sign of some catastrophic brain accident. So I'm not sure that mind empty of thoughts is so good. I mean, for a brief moment, sometimes in deep meditative practice, there are some moments when the mind for a moment stops, maybe a few moments stops, but more than a few moments you don't want to have happen. 
It's really about being comfortable with what the mind is doing. It's like saying, today my mind is all over the place. Okay, then that's the state of my mind. It's all over the place. Today my mind is making irritable thoughts. Well, today my mind is making irritable thoughts. It's like having a bad hair day. It's just, but to be able to say that's what's going on. Really what this practice is about is teach it, is habituating the heart to accommodate to what's happening in a benevolent way. Because really that's, I think, the, the key to being able to live through a life. That we are really accommodating from the beginning to the end to changing circumstances, many of which are uncomfortable. So mindfulness is non-coercive, Nyanapanika says, which means you don't have to make it something else. You say, this is what it is, and this is what it is, and this is what it is. Sometimes by saying this is what it is, and this is how I am, just in the naming of it, it changes immediately. I have been... uh, by email, having a wonderful practice of uh, uh, exchanging uh, an email every day with a friend of mine in which uh, we enumerate for each other without necessarily responding to what the other person has said, uh, what we're grateful for that day. And on days when things are going in a great way, it's not hard. Wonderful things happen, you say, I'm grateful this and that and the other happened. And... uh, I was, I was realizing, um, without, without chapter and verse on this story, I was realizing this morning as I was beginning my email that um, there were a whole bunch of things that I was irritable about that were in the front of my mind, and it was a little bit hard to get to the uh, uh, gratitude. So I began by saying, I'm really grateful that I have you as a friend to tell you that I'm irritable about this and that and that and that and that. And by the time I finished saying it was so ridiculous, all the things I was irritable about, that I'm also grateful that I have this practice of obliging myself to see what's going on in my mind because if I name it, it becomes so idiotic and it disappears immediately. Or I realize that irritability is making it worse. Those situations that I am irritab- was irritable about are the situations. Irritability makes them worse. They are what they are. They'll stay as long as they stay. Non-coercive. It's just what it is. The third of uh, the uh, the third of the powers of mindfulness that Nyanapanika said describes in this essay is that the practice of mindfulness slows down the mind. And it slows down the mind, not so much in the sense of thinking more slowly, but really producing a kind of carefulness in thought that he points out as valuable. He said, look how, much, how many mistakes you could avoid if the mind slowed down enough for you to be able to know what you were going to do before you did it. He, he reminds uh, the reader in this essay of the Buddha's instructions to his son Rahula about reflecting before you do anything. He said to Rahula, before you do anything, any action at all, you should think to yourself, is this what I'm about to do uh, for my benefit and for the benefit of all beings? And if it is, then fine, go ahead and do it. And in the middle of doing something, you should reflect, is this what I'm in the middle of doing for my benefit and the benefit of all beings? And if it is, you could continue. And after having done any action, you should reflect, was that what I, is what I did, was what I did. And I think about that as, um, I think about that in my own life, when I realize after I've done something that I wish I hadn't, um, I hope that I'm prompt about making amends and fixing it up. I try to be. If I'm in the middle of doing something and I realize, uh-oh, this is not so wise, I like to be able to stop and say, uh-oh, please excuse me, this is not so wise, I'll start again. Uh, but I like it the best if I figure out in advance that it's not so wise and I don't do it. It's much less embarrassing. Um, <laughs> And what Nyanapanika is talking about is that it's easier 
to be deliberate about what you're doing if you're not so overwhelmed with a um, mind that's um, cluttered and uh, one that in which you can't see clearly. He said, think of all the grave karma you could avoid if you had a mind that was a little bit slowed down. I actually think of it, I, I, I don't think about the grave karma so much as I think about the uh, amount of uh, energy I save if I um, am deliberate and thoughtful about what I do. And the fourth of the powers of mindfulness is uh, what he's named directness of vision, really seeing what's happening. Maybe I have a chance to tell you two stories seeing clearly what's happening. It says if, the, if, you, if your mind isn't balanced and relaxed, you'll be caught in old habits. Here's how he says it. Mm-hmm. Oh, I thought that was where he said it. Otherwise, I'll make up what he said. He said it so well, though, I believe. Uh I won't make it up and I won't find it either. I'll tell you two stories. One of them is uh, making the point, the point I couldn't find is he said, when you slow down, you're able to really determine whether your appraisal of a situation is the correct one or whether it's one that is um, shaped by the habits of mind that are unconscious to you, that are your particular glasses that you see through. So this is a dog in the road story. There's a corner that I need to turn several miles from my home that where one road comes to an end and it turns at a right angle and there's a house on that very corner and uh, I drive, every time I drive home I need to pass by that place. It's a, it's a road I know well. I was driving home, my husband was driving actually, drove around the corner and here was the house and it's place on the corner and the dog that lives in that house sitting outside, lying on the ground outside of the house and what looked to me to be an unusually dark, long patch of smudge in the road. And uh, I look, I, my mind saw that whole scene, house, dog, smudge in the road. And we are driving, and I said, you have to go back. And the car that's normally in the driveway, not there. So I said, you have to go back. The people are away. The dog has been hit by a car. You can see that big smudge in the road. And he's lying there. You can see by the way he's lying there that he's not well. He's been hurt. We need to turn around and go back with the car and check out the dog because surely we'll have to call the uh, Humane Society or do something, take the dog to an animal hospital. You can see he's lying there in a bad way. And my husband said, no, it looks fine. It's the same dog. I said, no, no, I can see there's that mark in the road and the dog is lying in that way. And the dog is fine. No, no, we have to go back because it's the mark in the road. That mark in the road wasn't there before. We turn around, we come back. Dog gets up, walks off. He's fine. (laughs) What has happened is I have looked at, the car is gone, the dog is lying down, and there's a mark in the road. There's just a mark in the road. What I have not factored in is that my mind can take a mark in the road and the dog lying with his left head instead of his right head or something on the the ground and make a whole catastrophic story about it. Now the truth is, I'm glad that I went back because I'm the one in a million chance that the dog wasn't well. It was a benevolent action on my part. I don't mind about it. But to the degree that I see how in, in such a tiny momentary occurrence in my life, there's alarm that comes up in me. <gasps> the worst is happening. To the degree that I saw that quite well, I think it took a little bit off that habit of fretfulness. I'm actually not the black belt fretter that I used to be. I'm a recovering fretter. <laughs> and, I'm, and I'm actually quite hopeful about the degree of recovery. So that's really, that's a direct vision of what's true, being able to see clearly what's true on the mundane, everyday level. I think uh, 
at least as important, maybe the most important, is to be able to see in that profound way what is true as much of the time as one can. I already told you that I I have a friend now with this um, really difficult and worrisome illness. And what we keep talking about is the awareness that uh, what's true is that this is not desirable, this is not uh, what anybody wanted, but it's what's happening. And what she is trying very hard to keep going for herself is the, is the also absolute truth that it's going to be what it's going to be. They're going to do, she and her partner are going to do the very best they can to treat this as uh, strongly as they can. And their best hope is that they'll, uh, is that they'll have a very positive, good conclusion to that. And their underlying and most biggest hope is that whatever happens, they'll be able to be all right with it, that they won't compound their situation, that both of them will be able to retain their um, appreciative hearts for however long, for the rest of their lives, which they hope will be long. That that's the possibility for all of us, that with seeing clearly the monumental causes that lawfully make our experience moment to moment, to understand seeing that, that we do what we can do, and if we can take what we get, then we can keep our appreciative hearts for the rest of our lives, which is really why we're here doing this practice. So we'll sit for just a minute. This talk was given by Sylvia Burstein at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on May 24, 2004. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.